You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. During Lent, if you've been able to be here or listen online, you'll know that we have been preaching from a short, three-chapter-long letter written by the Apostle Paul to Titus. Titus was a leader that Paul had trained and then taught, and then he left him behind, all on his own, to lead the churches on the island of Crete in Paul's absence. And so far in this letter, we've heard that Paul has talked about practicalities. He's talked about what ethical living looks like. Earlier in chapter 2, in the same chapter, Paul urged different groups of different ages and genders to exhibit certain godly behaviors. And we heard so wonderfully from Andrew last week about what that ethical living will look like for us 2,000 years later. So Paul has talked about ethics, and now Paul talks theology. Paul has given an imperative do this. And now comes the indicative. Paul has already given the what, and here today comes the why and the how. These verses, verses 11 through 14, sum up what Paul has described as sound doctrine that counters the sickness of human sin. This sound doctrine produces changed lives. And the content of this sound doctrine, as we read in our passage for today, has a framework. Paul sets a framework to show God's work in the past and the promise of his work in the future, as well then as his ongoing work in the present, especially in the lives of the redeemed. Paul uses a special word to describe two sure and certain points within human history that change everything theologically. The verb appear is used so usefully by the ESV. It's a great translation. And it's the same word that appears there twice. And it's the word from which we get the noun epiphany in English. Um, And if you think about an epiphany, what is an epiphany or an appearing? Well, it's an unveiling of a reality that is already in existence. You could call an epiphany an aha moment, the light bulb over our heads. Well, the two aha moments that Paul mentions here refer to Jesus' first coming and his second coming. In verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Paul talks in the past tense about what God has already done in Jesus Christ, in particular through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Verse 14 even goes on to describe, again using the past tense, what our salvation looks like. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus gave his life in exchange for ours. Our destinies have been swapped. Jesus went to the cross so that we would be forgiven and free, so that we would have the hope of eternity spent in his presence. The reality, this past reality and present reality of our salvation is sure and certain because it is secured through Christ's past action on our behalf. Well, the second appearing or the second aha moment of all of human history will be Jesus' return, his second coming. 
In verse 13, Paul mentions that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting. It won't always be like this, thank goodness. One day, Jesus will return, and every eye will see him as he really is in all of his heavenly glory, as the second person of the Trinity, as the Son of God, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, as the Prince of peace who has brought peace through his own death and resurrection. So there's that past and that future. And Paul describes these two aha moments. He mentions them so that he then can zero in on the time between these two fixed points. The future has broken in on the past, and there is now an overlap of the ages. Already we are saved, but that salvation will not be fully realized, will not be fully consummated until all heaven and earth are remade um, with us as well. Paul calls this time, this in-between time, the present age. And he shows that what Jesus came to do in the past and what he will do in the future have major implications for our present, especially as we struggle with the ongoing reality of sin. There's a book that we read in some of our small groups and discipleship classes called God's Big Picture, And in it, Vaughn Roberts gives a really helpful overview of the Bible, of the big picture from Genesis to Revelation, you might say. And he has a very handy way of looking at these three verbal tenses of our salvation and the way they relate to our sin, the past, the future, and then the present. Through God's work in the past, he says, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We hear this in Ephesians where Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And then when this life is over, when Jesus returns in the future, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Paul writes to the Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. As Christians... Our deaths are not the end. We can look forward to our deaths because when we die, our sin will finally die with us and we'll be raised to sin no more. So we are saved in the past by God from the penalty of sin. We will be saved in the future from the very presence of sin in our lives. And finally, Robert says, in this life, we hear the present tense of our salvation. We are being saved And we are being saved from the very power of sin day to day. Again, Paul attests to this reality in his first letter to the Corinthians. He reminds them of the gospel by which they are being saved. Have been saved, will be saved, are being saved. And so in focusing on this present age and today's passage, Paul seeks to underscore the how and the why that God currently saves us from the power of sin. He tells Titus that Christians are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Why? Well, because Christ has bought us. He bought us back. He redeemed us from sin and death and from all lawlessness. Even as we turn away from this old way of living, we're called to turn to a new way of living, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Why? Because Christ has purified us as his chosen people so that we would be zealous for good works. 
As Anglicans, wonderfully, we get to pray for this ideal new way of living. Whenever we confess our sins during morning prayer, we pray, grant, O most merciful Father, for his, Jesus' sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. That phrase, godly, righteous, and sober life, likely echoes Titus right here. Titus's self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. We ask God for this. We ask him for it. Um, we, ask him for him, we ask for him to make us holy um, in relation to our own selves, in relation horizontally with other people, and in relation vertically with himself. We ask for God's will. It is his will that we would be holy. And so we ask for it, we desire it, because somehow we've been given grace by Jesus Christ and our hearts are changed. Somehow, at some times, we actually desire for God's will to be done. And this is a miracle of grace in our hearts. There's a re- this is a reality that we also see in our human relationships. Sometimes, at very um, brief moments, maybe, or hopefully for longer moments for you, um, you'll get a glimpse of the reality of grace and love, uh, undeserved love. We see this in our closest human relationships, whether it's between husbands and wives or best friends, roommates even, uh, parents of children, whether they're at home or grown. We see sometimes undeserved grace, undeserved mercy, true love being freely given. And when that true love is freely given to us, doesn't it make us somehow desire what the other person wants? We know we haven't earned their love, but then somehow having received it, we want to do whatever they want. We say, thy will be done. When we've been loved without condition or expectation, somehow miraculously, we want what the other wants, no matter what that happens to be. And we see this when our relationships are easy, if they are easy, if there are moments where they feel smooth or pleasant, it is because they are imitating, albeit palely, and maybe just for a moment, but it's because they're imitating the kind of gracious love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. Grace miraculously generates the desire to obey. And so Paul can and does exhort Titus and the church on Crete to live sober, godly, righteous lives because he knows that they have been loved unconditionally by God. Again, that word of God's grace miraculously miraculously creates a desire to obey God's will, even if that desire is as tiny as a grain of sand on the beach of our hearts. Only 1%, maybe in the 100% of the makeup of our desire, still, by God's grace, it is there. And so Paul knows that the Cretans cannot attain to the ideal that he sets before them in their own strength in their sinfulness, and yet he urges them still. And he does that because he trusts that God by his grace will be the one who will bridge the gap between the ideal of his command and the reality of their own sinful hearts. We see this again in the passage by looking at what scripture says. All of those verses, verses 11 through 14 at least, turn out to be one sentence, as Paul is so keen on doing. He has very long sentences. Um, And in this very long sentence, there's only one subject and one main verb. Go back to the beginning, right there at the beginning of verse 11. The subject of the sentence is grace. The grace of God has appeared. In the past tense, God's grace justifies us through faith in Jesus Christ. But God's grace also sanctifies. Seen here through the other descriptive verbs that Paul uses. Paul personifies grace. Grace. 
showing her to be the school teacher in the schoolhouse of life. I love thinking about that personification of grace. Some lyrics of um, songs that um, maybe we wouldn't sing in church and songs that we do sing in church echo that. In one ear, I hear Bono crooning grace. It's the name for a girl. It's also a thought that could change the world. And then this is my favorite part. Grace makes beauty out of ugly things. Grace changes. And in my other ear, I hear the um, hymn, the song that I love. um, My song is Love Unknown, which we will maybe sing coming up in Holy Week as we go to the cross once again. Love to the loveless, shown that they might lovely be. Love changes. Grace changes. Grace is what trains us to renounce ungodliness. Grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, to want it even for a second each day. Grace generates within us that zeal for good works because by God's grace, Jesus has made us into a purified people of his own possession. Well, how does this work then? How does grace train us? How does grace teach us and instruct us? While in reflecting on this, I I couldn't help but thinking about airport transportation. I know that might feel like, okay, Deborah, wait a second. I was tracking, and now I'm not tracking, or I was asleep, and now I'm awake. Airport transportation is something I reflect upon because when you're stuck in an airport, you're really stuck. You don't have a book, or maybe I have a book, but I don't always open it. You're watching the people go by. I find it actually very prayerful because you have no control really over your circumstances. Well, there in an airport, I think about it, and there are so many different options for us to be able to get from one place to another, from security to departure gate, or from our arrival gate to baggage claim, and then on to ground transportation. Sometimes, if you're like me, you want to hoof it on your own because you don't trust all those other options and you have a tight connection in a big airport like Atlanta, so you race the people on the um, moving sidewalk. That might be the, um, the best analogy for justification by works. Um, or if you have more time, you do get on that moving sidewalk and you allow it to give you a little help along the way, but you still kind of feel like you're doing it yourself. Or you see an escalator that will get you up to a higher level and you just step on and there you are. Life is better once you're on the escalator. And then even if you, if you don't manage walking very well, you can get a lift from one of those carts with the flashing lights. They'll zoom you past all of those poor suckers to the front of the line. Well, I would say that none of these forms of transportation provide the right analogy for how God, by his grace, is saving us in this life, this present age, from the power of sin. God doesn't whisk us from one place to another, sinful in one moment, in one way, and perfect in the next. Or he does it sometimes, but not as much as we might like it. And thankfully, in contrast, God doesn't expect us to set our own course, to arrive there in all our own strength, running to catch our plane, lugging all our baggage. Um, No, we might like to think we're in control, but um, we don't get to set our destination. And God is so much more involved than just giving us a little help along the way, like the moving sidewalk. We can't just ascend to a higher level. We might think that as Christians, we can jumpstart our sanctification and progress upward as if on an escalator of our own devising. Well, no, that's not the truth either. I think one of the best analogies for, um, for the way grace works would be uh, the image of a revolving door. And I hate to admit it, but um, I really hate revolving doors. 
I don't like them, especially if I have a rolling suitcase behind me because I'm afraid I'll get stuck on the way in or on the way out. Um, I, I've never seen a revolving door in an airport before, but when I first visited Birmingham in 2012, to my horror, I saw that there was a revolving door, and not just any old revolving door, but the old airport, do you remember? It had these automated revolving doors, and you had to time your entry and your exit at just the right moment, which is a nightmare if you have a suitcase. Um, and so I had to wait and get the sense for the timing and the rotation, scoot in at just the right moment, and allow it to spit me out where I was going. Well, I would say that grace trains us in this life in a way that feels uh, like a revolving door, an automated revolving door that someone else has set in motion. We are not in control, and yet by God's grace, he set us on our way. God sets before us the kind of ideal living that Paul talks to Titus about. And when we he- because we've received this grace from God through Jesus Christ, when we hear that ideal, there's some very small part of us that desires to obey. That's the way grace works. And so we might set out to obey, Um, And then in our honesty, we realize we fail to obey perfectly or even we fail completely to obey. And through the conviction then of the Holy Spirit, grace, again, we fall humbly on our knees in repentance for our failures and our sins. And there, where we are at the foot of the cross, on our knees, we receive once again God's grace and his mercy through Jesus' death for us. And then God's word of grace and forgiveness stands us back up on our feet and sends us out with the power of the Holy Spirit, grace, again, to live godly, righteous, sober lives with a zeal for good works. And the circle repeats, doesn't it? We come back again, we fall on our knees, uh, we're forgiven and free and set back on our feet. Grace stands us up, dusts us off, and generates miraculously within us the desire to obey the will of the one who has saved us. My friends, God is the one in control of getting us from where we are to where he wants us to be. He will do it. The sound doctrine of his grace, given in the past, promised in the future, and present so powerfully in the here and now, provides both the why and the how God will cause us to do the what of good living. And so with that in mind, let's pray. Lord Jesus, indeed, we ask that you would once again break through to us today. Would you somehow generate within us, by your grace, that desire to obey you, even as you have gone to the cross on our behalf? And when we fail and fall, Lord, would you once again send your grace to um, cause your forgiveness to be realized in our lives once again? Would you stand us on our feet, um, forgive us, and send us out once again to do your will? And would you sustain us throughout this whole life as we seek to follow you for your glory's sake and in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. 